Dr. Matt Ross hasn't been a professor for very long, but he's not fuzzy on what he wants to impart to students in his watershed science course at Colorado State University. Working with the city of Fort Collins, Colorado, and in situ, he's given students the rare opportunity to manage a continuous water monitoring network along one of the region's iconic rivers, just a short distance from the university. As more agencies and firms prioritize remote data collection over intermittent grab sampling, Matt is making sure that his students not only know how to maintain the sensors themselves, but also have the skills to manage the large data sets they produce. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod. My name is Helen Taylor. I'm content manager at InSitu, and my co-host today is Eric Robinson, InSitu's application development manager for surface water. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Hey, Helen. I'm great today. How are you? Good, good. All things considered, great to have you here. So we were lucky today. With us is Dr. Matthew Ross. He's an assistant professor at Colorado State University, and he's here to talk with us, among other things, about a really fun project that CSU, in situ, and also the city of Fort Collins worked on together to set up some water quality monitoring along the Cache Laputa River. We should clarify for people who don't know that in situ is, uh, while we're a global company, we're headquartered in Fort Collins and have been here for many years. And the Cache Laputa River is the lifeblood of this town and, you know, much of the front range. It's a gorgeous river that comes down out of the mountains and flows through Fort Collins and delivers uh, water for use in agriculture and business throughout the front range and recreation and, you know, everything else you can imagine. So it's a big deal to be able to do a project around the river. And this one was a special one. So before we get into details about that and what we've been working on and and how things are developing, I want to bring Matt into the conversation and welcome you. Maybe you could just start with telling us a little bit about your background and what your focus is at CSU. Thanks, Helen. Um, yeah, so my background is that I grew up in Colorado, uh, in Monument, Colorado, so not far from here, about two hours south. Um, and then I went to Boulder for undergrad, and I studied ecology there. And then I also minored in French, and I went and lived in France for a year and taught English there. And then I came back to the States to do a PhD in ecology at um, Duke University, where I studied the impacts of mountaintop mining on water quality Uh, in West Virginia, um, working with Dr. Emily Bernhardt and Martin Doyle and Brian McGlynn. And a big part of that work was um, basically installing a bunch of sensors in streams uh, throughout West Virginia, downstream of all these mines. And this was sort of before telemetry. So I drove up to West Virginia every month for four years, downloading data and then uh, analyzing the data. And um, then I did a postdoc at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where I did more remote sensing of water quality uh, work. So working more at like a continental and global scale, and then um, got a assistant professorship in our department of ecosystem science and sustainability at Colorado state university. And specifically within that department, I teach mostly watershed science um, classes, which is a sort of rare major across the country, but we have a full undergrad watershed major. And, um, yeah, when I got here, I knew that I was going to mostly be working with large public data sets um, for my work because I really like working at that scale, sort of the national scale. 
but I also knew that um, it's hard to gain intuition about how rivers and watersheds work when you're only working with data and you're not going outside. So I also knew I wanted a local project and I started talking to, to Eric um, because one of my colleagues, Tim Cavino, had done a tour of in situ for his watershed measurements class and told me about Eric and Eric and I met and we were chatting about how I had some uh, of this magic money called startup funds. When you start a professorship, you get money to, <laughs> to, uh, to start your lab and uh, that I wanted to buy some sensors and install them in our local river. So, you know, my students could bike to these sensors and manage them from a bicycle instead of a six hour drive. Like I had when I was in grad school Um and then Eric, in a week after I talked to him, the city talked to him about their need for some sensors. And so Eric brought us all together um, to say, hey, why don't you guys combine efforts? And then basically since that meeting, I've been working closely with Eric and in situ on the sort of instrument acquisition side and then the city on where we're going to install these sensors and what are our priorities? What are the questions we want to answer, um, which we can get into in a bit. But that's sort of my background. So I come from sort of... Uh, pure ecology, water quality background. And then um, I've moved a lot into open public data, but all that's been based a lot on sensor technology. And um, this field site in the Cache Laputer is sort of my local field work that I anchor a lot of my teaching to because it's a lot easier to teach folks how rivers work if you can go to the river. Um, And then what the data means, you kind of build some intuition. So I guess I'll stop there. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, maybe Eric, you can pick up a little bit there from you know your perspective. Um, how did the city come into this, and um, and maybe you can tell us just a little bit about how the project came together and what you saw were the primary goals. Yeah. So in 2018, we were speaking with the city just about the challenges they were running into in their sampling procedures and their um, their issues in getting out to the field in time. And unfortunately, at, at that point, there was also a pretty significant fish kill uh, right behind our facility and through through the city itself. And that really kind of became the impetus in many ways for what we're doing now. Uh, because the city realized that although they could get out and respond to events by running out to the field to collect samples, that wasn't always really representative of what was happening. And they had a need to collect data on an ongoing basis in a way that they just weren't at the time. And as I was having that conversation with the city of Fort Collins, I was lucky enough to be speaking with Matt over at CSU about uh, his starting up and the program's that, that he wanted to create for students at CSU. And it seemed like a really natural uh, uh, pairing to get that group together and see what could be done to solve the city's problems and hopefully help Matt and his students. And being an in situ, we were able to facilitate it and um, make sure that everyone was hopefully getting to their needs. Great. So Matt, what is the project? Yeah, the project has many goals. We actually have this very long multi-page uh, document of goals from the different stakeholders. Um, from CSU's side, uh, there's sort of two related goals. One is um, just laying some groundwork research using sensor data um, to look at the sort of status of the river. So the way we've placed these sensors starts up at the top of our canyon, basically where the water is mostly unimpacted by agricultural or city um, return flows. And then it 
as you go down, we have six in- sensors installed right now. Basically, as you go down the, the valley, um, you pick up more agricultural water and more uh, urban water, which you know changes the water quality as you go from this sort of higher elevation all the way down to the to, towards Greeley. And uh, so one of the one of the research goals on my end is is sort of purely research, and it's to describe these water quality impacts um, longitudinally as you go through what the city and many other people call a working river. So this is a river that people like to recreate in, and um, and sort of it's really good fly fishing. And if you ever go out for runs along the river, you'll see a ton of people fly fishing and playing in the river. But at the same time, it's a river that's heavily used for agricultural and city. Um, water supply. So about 50% of Fort Collins water supply comes from this, from the pooter. And so we just want to understand long-term changes to water quality. There's some new dams going in too. So this is sort of pre-data before the dams go in. Um, And so that's one goal. The other goal is to train and educate students um, on how to use high frequency sensor data sets. Uh, I think for a long time, classes like the ones I teach, which are like land use and water quality and a water quality lab, the emphasis was on bench science. So you go out to the field with a bucket and some filters and you grab water and then you filter it and then you um, collect that data. And essentially you have less than hundreds, maybe tens of samples that are pretty easily analyzable in Excel because it's just not that much uh, in Microsoft Excel. It's just not that much data. And the demands for the students now graduating from our program is that uh, more and more and more cities and states and uh, consulting agencies aren't just relying on grab samples, as Eric mentioned. They're relying on sensor data. And that requires a fundamentally different skill set. So when you... when and where we installed these sensors was also targeted at making sure I get undergraduate and graduate students out to these sites to both manage the physical sensor and then also manage the large data sets that come down. So right now, I think we have 49 different um, data streams coming in at 15-minute intervals. And so basically within a year or two, you have millions of data points. Um, So you need to to have a a special skill set to be able to to reasonably analyze that data. And I want to make sure I train my students in that. So it serves both sort of um, ongoing research projects, and those are guided some, somewhat by the city's uh, research goals. And also it serves this education purpose of ch- training undergrads and graduate students on how to use this data. Yeah, so the, the benefit that we had was in this project, the goals the city had in their need for long-term data collection and uh, through our conversations, what what Matt's needs were as far as providing for the students' learning goals over over time and then developing his program actually matched really well with our portfolio. So we were able to get out in the field our multi-parameter water quality SONs and tie those back to our telemetry system. All that data then goes into our digital our visualization platform, Hydroview, before Matt takes that and makes some modifications and changes the uh, the data into their final presentation form. So it allows us to to put our units in the field and get them in the hands of students, which we find to be really important. At the same time, Matt can use our API to take the data then and make it even more malleable for for the needs that he has. So it, it matched really well with what we could offer and bring to the table and what uh, the city and the university needed. So 
How did you decide where to install the monitoring stations? Yeah, so we are working with the city of Fort Collins stormwater engineers, and uh, mainly that's uh, Basil Hamden, and also their watershed um, team, which is, uh, we've mostly been working with Jared Heath, but also uh, Richard Thorpe. And we basically worked with them, and they have these long-term monitoring sites that they've been collecting data, and those are essentially situated based on either incoming streams that frequently drain large agricultural areas. So streams that are coming from basically mostly north of Fort Collins that drain these large agricultural fields. Um, We would put a sensor ideally above and below those incoming streams because then you can sort of capture the impact of those streams. And so that's sort of like capturing mostly agricultural impacts. And then we have, uh, we place a lot of sensors based on where we know uh, from Basel where the stormwater, uh, return flows come in. So there's big stormwater pipes in certain places in the city. And that's where we put these um, sensors that go from the Archer range in Fort Collins, which is in the Southeastern edge, not quite the edge, but Southeastern part of Fort Collins, all the way up to the Northwestern edge of Fort Collins in the town of LaPorte. And um, like I said earlier, those sort of bracket this impact from basically more or less pristine mountain river. Although of course that has now changed dramatically with our 200,000 acre fire that is all above uh, all of our sensors. And so we're trying to write some grants to deploy more sensors that can even go to the full headwaters, um, even above where the fire hit this year. Um, and I'm talking about the Cameron Peak fire for folks who um, don't know. Our, our watershed now ha- has a fire that's about 208,000 acres that is burning still right now, even though there's like a foot and a half of snow outside. And um, in 2012, there was another large fire called the High Park Fire. So um, that's, again, part of the sort of water quality mix here is um, not just agricultural and urban impacts on water quality, but also dam and uh, fire impacts on water quality. Yeah. And Matt, let me ask you kind of a question related to that. Um, Have you seen interest spiking up from the community or students or the city related to the fires and and what that means in terms of what we're seeing in water quality has that come to you yet oh yeah um massive immediate increase in interest from the city uh, because i don't know if you know this but right now so our water supply in the city is very common for at least as far as i know front range water supplies but also probably western u.s which is that it's a mix of river water and reservoir water. And so the major reservoir where we get water supply for the city of Fort Collins is called Horsetooth Reservoir. And that's water that comes from the Big Thompson Project, which means it is draining the Western Slope. Um, So it's coming from uh, really sort of the Shadow Mountain Lake, Grand Lake area on the other side of the divide through a big tunnel. And right now that tunnel, the connection to our water treatment plants, they're servicing it. So from October through December, we are not using any water from Horsetooth Reservoir while our watershed burns. And so there's a real concern that if we're pulling all of our water from the Poudre River, um, we don't want to have a big turbidity plume or something that really impacts the water supply. And so I know the city's installed some sensors up higher in the uh, catchment. And then we are all having frequent discussions, uh, including with the Forest Service, about installing sensors uh, over the longer term to monitor these fire effects. And there's a variety of fire effects. The obvious ones are erosion the next year. So you burn everything and then a big thunderstorm hits next July. And the fear is that you erode a lot of sediment um, into the river. That's one that a lot of people think about. Um, But 
there's some more subtle longer term impacts that um, some researchers at CSU, including myself, are working on, which includes um, thinking about increased nutrients in this river, um, potentially, because now you don't have as many um, that basically after a fire, often there's higher nitrogen release from the soils um, into the river. And then also um, there's some recent research that shows that fires release uh, some amount of toxic metals. And so we're sort of broadening our, our approach to, to this because, you know, not all of those things are sensible from a sensor. And so we're, we're, we're basically working with the city to try to think of an approach to make sure we're on top. We stay on top of this. I don't think it's going to be a huge issue during this, the snow uh, like basically starting hopefully now the winter where it's mostly snow melt, but certainly um, the common impact from these fires is the next year you worry about floods um, and, and, and turbidity. Yeah. And then the timing of it is also really interesting because it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say wrapping up, but we're kind of wrapping up a little bit here at the beginning of the water year. Yep. And therefore we can, I'm, I'm imagining, um, you'll be able to encapsulate a lot of what's happened with these Western wildfires into the, the upcoming water year and, and trying to really see how that impacts it as opposed to last year and the data that you got then. Yeah, exactly. I think we, we have a nice backbone of um, six sites with a bunch of the, a bunch of relevant parameters before this fire. And then next spring, summer, we'll have sort of a new water year, um, and I don't know if, if you've been in Fort Collins recently, but this recent snow, obviously a lot of that's melting and the river was so, so, so dry because we didn't get precipitation for almost two months and it was low. We had to move some of our sensors because they were too high in the water because it had never been that low in the two years we've installed them. And now the river's not quite raging, but it looks like snow melt water again because all the snow is melting. Um, and it's, it's just, it's pretty dynamic right now. Um, so Natalie, my grad student and I are, looking at that data. And right now we don't see a huge impact from the fire, um, which is somewhat you, what you'd expect because snow melt is so gentle on the soil. So it's not going to like rip sediment out um, right now, but we certainly will be working with the city to, to see if there's any um, additional water quality changes that we aren't detecting with the sensors like uh, metals or nutrients. And what parameters yeah. are you monitoring right now? Yeah, good question. Um, I always forget because there's a lot. Um, specific conductivity, which is a measure of salinity in the water. Um, so that has a huge summer gradient where the mountains, it's fairly low. And in the once you've uh, got all the agricultural return flow, it, it uh, the salinity increases quite a bit, which is a common Western water issue. Um, we also are measuring turbidity. We, we're measuring chlorophyll A at a subset of sites. Um and turbidity is just a measure sort of of like how many particles are suspended in the water column. Um, we're measuring pH, we're measuring redox potential, we're measuring dissolved oxygen, which is of major interest to the city. Um, because if you have anoxic events, those can lead to fish kills. Um, so if you have really low oxygen that can kill fish, um, we're measuring just water level, which is how you would eventually measure discharge and temperature. Uh, I probably missed one, but I think I got all of them. Okay. It's funny you bring up the um, the installation depth, Matt. One of one of the most enjoyable things I've been able to do um, here within situ over the course of the last couple of years was getting out in the field with you and your students and actually installing the units. It's it's one of those things where 
I always find it to be enjoyable to actually get my hands on the equipment and go out there and work with it. The one thing that, that I really noticed with your students in particular, but I've noticed this with a lot of, of students, is how engaged they get when you provide them power tools and <laughs> <laughs> power tools. And basically send them out into a river with uh, some power tools and just tell them to start drilling into bridges. But it, it is one of those things that I, I always walk away with a renewed sense of excitement for what it is we all do. Because I think that sometimes you get, you get kind of engaged in the, the day-to-day grind of it. But when you're out in the field working with someone who's doing it for the first time with an installation, it really um, reminds you how much fun it can be. Yeah, totally. I think um, that's something same happens when you're a professor. You sort of stop having your hands in the field very much, probably for good reason, because I don't know what I'm doing anymore. But um, yeah, it was fun with Natalie and Miles installing those. And then obviously, uh, you know, Eric and I've talked about this a lot, but when you first install a sensor, your hope is that it's like the perfect install. But the field sites changed. Rivers are extremely dynamic. And so already at two or three of our sites, we've had to adjust because the thalweg moved, which is this sort of deepest, most active part of the river. Um, and so we've sort of like extended some of the stuff we've installed and changed them um, as, as the river changes as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been nice to sort of have students get excited about that and continue to maintain them. And I don't have to go to the field and maintain them anymore. Related to that, Matt, uh, when it comes to students, what do you generally see being their big takeaway, not just in working with, with equipment, but in working with data and being able to, in my mind, see, see what they're presented with in, in texts or presentation, and then being able to go out and do it on their own. Like, what do you, what do you usually see being the thing that they walk away with? Yeah, I think either with the sort of physical install and management of a sensor or the data that it generates, one of the most important things is uh, responsibility and ha- being hands-on with it. So it's one thing for me to say, hey, working with these data sets is hard and cleaning the data after it's been in the river for a year is something that is very difficult if you wait till the very end. Uh, it's one thing for me to say that. It's another for a student to sort of live it. So I think you know, that's most obvious with my grad student, Natalie, who's been in charge of this the whole time. Um, I think that for her now, she really understands sort of like the process of calibrating, maintaining these sensors and all of the sort of field component, but also um, what it takes to have a clean, defensible data set uh, that is publishable as for, for research purposes or is usable for the city. Um because just things happen in rivers. So you might have a really high sediment day and then all that sediment sort of drops on top of your sensor and then you go clean it. And now you have this big jump in your data because your turbidity sensor was covered by a foot of sand. And so you got to figure out what are you going to do with that data afterwards? And so um, once that hand, that responsibility is fully handed off to the students and I do a very small version of this with my undergrads, um, I think that that's actually really critical because it's it shows the need for these really different skill sets. You kind of have to have both. One is the field maintenance and pulling the sensor out and make sure your calibration fluid's all ready and that the temperature is stable and all this other stuff that's sort of, um, let's say, mechanical and chemical. And then there's this other one that is totally different skill set, which is like the data science side, which is, okay, now I have a million data points. How do I make sure that that time series is real? Um, 
and that when there's jumps in data, because, you know, one time I put the sensor in and the level was 10 centimeters and then I pulled it out and messed around and then my cable changed the length a little bit and then I put it right back in and now it's six centimeters. How do you deal with that four centimeter difference and those kinds of um, issues basically. And I did this in my grad school. I lost two years of data because I just kind of didn't get it. Um, and I, I just kind of think that's part of it. You got to really learn those two really distinct skill sets. And the only way to do it is to sort of take control of something and be in charge of it. Yeah. I've always kind of thought of it as being the best version of the class hamster, you know, where <laughs> everyone has a little bit of responsibility for it. <laughs> I think it's great because as, as you said, it, it's something that they wind up having to do on their own. And if it fails, they can understand and see what they did that kind of, in most cases made it fail, but they're always engaged in. Yeah. And I think this is where like um, I've learned a lot with the telemetry. So I, I'm a relatively young professor, so I'm, you know, finished my PhD in 2017. And even before then, only like the USGS had telemetry and uh, telemetry just means like live streaming the data so that uh, I don't have to go out to the field necessarily to see what the pH is or something. Um, and I, I, so I didn't have telemetry in my PhD and, and here having telemetry, I kind of thought it would solve a lot of the headaches because you'd be like, you basically wouldn't go check the sensor until you were pretty sure something was needed messing with. And for the most part, that's been true. But um, I think I've sort of realized like, you know, no matter what, you kind of need your your hands on the sensor more frequently than you think um, to, to get the best quality data, just because the river is so dynamic. So like right after snowmelt, everything is different because a ton of sediment and water just came through there. And so you got to go check pretty frequently because as that sediment sort of settles out, you, your, your sensor site might not be the right place anymore. You, you might have to move it. And so that's something that we've sort of been learning, like how to optimize field work versus checking the, the HydroView um, telemetry data is like, that's not something I had a good sense of because in my PhD, I had to go every month, no matter what. So I saw the physical in, install once a month period. Whereas with, with Natalie, sometimes it's like, you know, going into the fall, it, the river's pretty mellow. It might be like four months. Um, you know, so it's just a very different setting and we've been learning a lot about how to like make that, make the telemetry work best for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think telemetry is, it's, it's engaging for all of us. Um, but I think that it's, it's really engaging for people that are just coming into this for the first time because you can jump on your laptop or your phone or your, your iPad, whatever it might be. And actually see what, if you've set it up for this, you can see what's going on at your site that day or the day prior. And because of that, there's a real immediacy to, to your site. And, and from what I've seen with students in particular, the, the ownership level goes way up because all of a sudden they're seeing it every day. It's one of those things where we're all kind of learning sometimes from students um, and seeing, for me anyways, seeing how they engage with it. And then I get to think of, of how I engage with stuff. Uh, with sensors and sites and rethink like, hey, maybe I should do that more often. Maybe I should jump on and take a look at my sites more often. Yeah. Well, especially totally. in the time of COVID, right? This, they're still able yeah. to, to do something, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. So my master's student's been working on this basically as soon as CSU gave us permission to do field work again. There was a freeze for a little bit, but she's been out since May because we sort of went through the permission process. And then uh, going into the spring, I teach my water quality sort of lab class and um, we'll be heavily relying on these because we're not going to meet in person inside for the spring. We're just going to 
go outside. So we're going to be going to our field sites um, to, to sort of be able to do the majority of what we would have done in class, but just in the field. Um, so that's been, that's really nice to have this sort of like outdoor lab. And one thing I would say just in terms of the telemetry, something I didn't quite anticipate, uh, but is now obvious is when I was doing my PhD, the day, the moment I would go to the sensor, the, there was two moments of anxiety when you go to your field site. One is like going there and just making sure everything's still there. Cause you just don't know you've been gone for a while and there could have been a flood. And the second is when you connect them to their download cable is the data there. And so like, there's this, there's these two brief moments of anxiety, but the month between you're mostly not thinking about it. One thing that I've experienced with Natalie, sort of both of us have experienced is that knowing that we can always go online is actually like, you have to think about some barriers in your own head of like, I don't want to always be looking at this because it causes me. <laughs> uh, and I'm not talking about anxiety of like the, the river changing. I'm talking about, um, the anxiety of like, is the sensor still working? Like what's going on? So when there's big floods, you always, that that's when both of us sort of check it frequently. And, um, you know, it's, you sort of need to have your own like calendar as if you're going to the field, like, all right, I'm only going to look at it every two weeks or something. It's kind of like the news. Alarms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I guess that kind of relates to a question that, that, I always have for people that are a lot better at this than I am at the, the concept of, of data presentation and data visualization and, and how it is that we're viewing data. Mm. Right. And this is something that, that you have as much background in as probably anyone that we talk to Matt. So what is it that you think we're getting right? And what do you think it is that we overall are getting wrong in, in how we think of, of the presentation of data, particularly, of water quality data. Well, that's a it's a good question. Um, so we've talked about this, Eric. I'm, I'm going to give away yeah, some of my, yeah. my good ideas. But um, so one thing, like that, is critical with these sensor data sets is the reason partially you install sensors is you're interested in things varying over different timescales. So um, let's say I'm just going out and doing grab samples of dissolved oxygen. Well, if I'm doing that, I'm not going to really see the diel or the daily variation in oxygen, which is the huge control on oxygen dynamics in rivers is basically sunlight because their algae are sort of producing oxygen during the day and then dying off at night and oxygen is consumed. And so you see this really um, sort of sinusoidal wave of oxy dissolved oxygen dynamics. And that is something you really only see with sensors. And so um, one of the things that's really excellent in HydroView is that you're using some interactive JavaScript thing to make all the time series zoomable. So I can look at a full year's worth of dynamics that shows me, you know, oxygen is higher and has higher peaks in the summer. And then in the sort of winter months, it sort of flattens out. And so I can look at this over like large seasons. And then I can also look over like a week and see like, oh, wow, during that week after it was recovering from a flood, because algae after floods, often the populations go way down. And then afterwards they start to recover. And you see this really interesting dynamics in the diel daily variation in dissolved oxygen, where you have increasingly high peaks and increasingly low troughs. And so when I can zoom around and look at like the daily variation in conjunction with the annual variation, that's a critical thing when you have Seven, six or seven sites and nine different parameters. The fact that I can like zoom around in all of them. Um, the, the thing that I think many of these web viewers don't have is just really basic 
filters for quality of data. Sensors rely on optics and you know, electrical current and very sort of like fine scale physical and chemical processes to tell you what's going on in the river. And sometimes those things are wrong. And a lot of times when they're wrong, they're wrong for one measurement. So you have an hour of data and you have dissolved oxygen that says 100% of saturation. So for a while, and then all of a sudden it goes up to 400 or something ridiculous. And you don't know why, but that just happens in the data. And um, in HydroView, when, when, it, when it shows that single point that's a big jump, it sort of distracts from the real data. And uh, we see this a lot with our level data because we're using the telemetry and just occasionally the telemetry unit will drop. And that's what's uh, barometrically correcting for the um, level in the sensor. And so all of a sudden it'll be like, oh my gosh, you went from you know being 0.1 meters in the river to being 17 meters deep for just one measurement out of like a full day. But then when I look at the, the graph, what it shows is a y-axis that goes from zero to 18 meters or something ridiculous. And so yeah. that's just like some basic sort of like sensibility flags um, I think would make this a little more interpretable and, and frankly, a little less dangerous. So like in the dissolved oxygen context, let's say you're a city manager and your dissolved oxygen drops right when you looked at it and it's now at 0%. Uh, for one or two measurements, um, you might, you as the end user might react to that and like mobilize people and stuff like that. When in fact, you should just wait a second and see like, oh, was that just like a blip? Because like a fish went by the sensor and darkened everything. You know, like there's random things that happen in rivers that you can't know about. So that's that's something you and I have talked about, Eric, is like just some basic, and I've developed certain, like um, I wouldn't really call them artificial intelligence, not machine learning algorithms to tell you what's realistic and what's not um, and sort of just flag unrealistic data. I think that's where like the end users, you know, I'm sure you you all have projects with people like me that are small and then you have projects that someone buys 150 sensors. Um, and I would, I think that a big thing is like, what is the goal? So is it to have tons of raw data that you can touch at any time? Or is it to have actionable knowledge that sort of summarizes all that data into some like red light, green light, uh, water quality index or something. And so this is a thing I've talked a lot with the city about and I'm, I'm hoping to sort of move into, which is not so much a data platform, but a knowledge platform. So like we need to answer some basic questions in order to treat our, this is just made up, but like, let's say the city says we need to just treat our water with the minimum amount of chemicals. And to do that, you know, it'd be great if we had a five hour heads up on what's going on up river. Um, they don't need like the most raw data. They might just need like a sort of summary set of information, which is sort of where I think that researchers and, and, you know, if, or consulting agencies or cities can sort of build on top of the telemetry unit, since it is really easy to grab the data and shove it through some other analysis. So I'm, I work mostly in the programming language called R. And so in that programming language, I can do a lot of this like data filtering and cleaning and flagging of data um, to turn that more into like advice and less into just raw output. Um, and so that's, that's an area of interest for me. So, so talk to me a little bit about that, Matt. So you're then taking the data from HydroView and are you using the API to bring it into R or are you doing it on a kind of one-to-one basis? Yeah. So when I was playing around with it, um, I'm learning how to be an advisor as well. Um, when I was playing around with it, I was mostly using the API. 
Um, my student was learning R at the time. And so she's has a pipeline that's mostly like uh, hand downloading it from HydroView and then analyzing it. Some of that's because we don't actually have like a decision support system up yet, even though that's our long-term goal. Um, so yeah, I, th I think some of it is that we just pull it live from the API so I can just run a script and not have to touch anything. Um, and then Natalie's workflow is mostly actually working, going into HydroView, downloading the relevant sites and parameters and working from that um, downloaded data, both of which are very easy, frankly. Because when yeah. we uh, talked with you, well, when I first talked with you late last year, when we were just writing, working on an article about this um, project, you were talking about how the, the, the university would be taking in the data and then providing it to the city. Is that how that's working? Are you? Yeah. And I would say, um, frankly, on our end, we have not quite met that goal because, um, we just, the automated nature of what we are, our goal was, which was to have fully automatically cleaned data that we're really confident if the city uses for decision-making that it's, uh, correct. We haven't quite got there. And then I've talked to a lot of other professors and folks, and this is just a canonically difficult problem and no one's really solved it. Even the USGS who has far more sensors than I do, um, they hand clean their data, um, before they serve it back to the community. And so I had this lofty goal that I frankly was a little ignorant about how hard it was to make this automated machine that would clean seven different types of parameters uh, really quickly. And we haven't quite reached that goal. In the end, though, it still is doing what you're talking about, Helen. We take in the data. Instead of cleaning it with all these automated workflows, we clean it by hand. And that's what the city works with. Um, and again, this is all sort of in the early stages, I think one thing I really love about this project is we're all taking a pretty long-term view. And so the idea is to do it slow and steady so that in the end we have this real nice big system rather than setting it up and it works good enough and let's move on. Um, so that's, what's nice. The city has been really supportive of doing this sort of um, as carefully as possible so that we have something that lasts for a long time. Cause one of the things that happens with sensors uh, in a lot of projects, particularly if you work with academics is we have three or five year funding cycles max. And so we install these sensors and then we, the funding's over and we publish two papers and then we just like, no, then the sensors like no one uses them anymore. And I, I went into this project really not wanting that to be the case where it's just going to kind of fall off if I fall off kind of thing. Um, and that's where sort of partnering with Institute in the city has been really helpful. Well, and I remember that you also talked about finding engaging ways to share the data with the public. Yeah, that's a huge part of my general lab approach, whether it's with the city of Fort Collins sort of sensor data or with public data all over the country. We use um, different platforms to sort of make similar visualizations so that the ones that are in HydroView, but are sort of custom to specific questions. So maybe you're interested in dissolved oxygen at all six of our sites, and we'll show you like a video of how it changed during a flood or something like that. And that's a big part of where we want to go um, in terms of visualizing the, the data in large public spaces like at Colorado State University, or um, there's a bunch of breweries that are on the, this, the river, which I've always thought about how you know, they depend on the same water. So it'd be kind of cool to put the visualize visualizations up on their screens if we get to that point. But we have a lot of ideas for how to do that. We haven't done any of it yet. Yeah, so I've, I've, 
kind of a question for you, Matt, on this. You've been able now for the last two years to be involved pretty intimately in a private, I don't want to call it, or public academic private partnership. And um, I'm sure through that you've, you've learned a lot. And this is one of those things that there are a lot of people out there that want to replicate. And I, I think the challenge of trying something new like this scares a lot of people away. So has there been something that you've learned through the person who's managing on really a day-to-day basis, a, a public academic private relationship, um, what's worked well, what's been a challenge, what would you go back and, and do again and change if you could you know, start over? That's a great question. There's a ton. And some of that's tied up with my general, some, some of that's tied up with my general knowledge of learning how to be a professor. Cause I started and basically within a month we met. So, you know, I was learning how to do the whole teaching research mentoring thing. Um, I think one thing is this project has some real true end users. I'm used to academic projects that like, if it fails, no one uh, knows except you. And uh, this has, you know, the potential that like thousands of people could see this data. And um, as such, I think it's actually, it was too much to put onto one master student. I think that was like kind of crazy of me in retrospect. I think I probably should have hired like an ex USGS employee to, to manage these. And that um, Natalie would have come in as, as into a working system versus someone who had to set it all up. I think it's actually been a lot that she's been able to take on and she's done amazing um, but she came from no sensor background and, and relatively small data uh, data science background to, to fully managing this whole project. And so she's done an awesome job, but it kind of also has meant that we haven't been ready to go and I haven't been bragging to the city, like use our knowledge decision support system because I've been too busy to really build that. And then Natalie's been too busy learning how to just do the basic aspects of this. So another thing that, you know, just... I've learned a lot about is funding academics is weird and hard and difficult and annoying um, because the city really likes, we have a great relationship and we have a great relationship with, with, with in situ. And that's, I guess the main thing I've learned is like relationships are where it all starts and ends is um, it's really like about talking to people in the end. And one of the things that is difficult is even if the city wants to give me a huge chunk of money, the way they allocate money is not built to pay researchers. It's built to pay consultants or themselves. And that just, that just makes like there's hoops to, to, to do this partnership. And um, that's something that like is broad, right? Like the city forestry department wants to work with Colorado state university. There's like a million of these things. And that's the same in Boulder and, you know, Santa Barbara and every other university in the country. Um, There's a bunch of us that are, have skills, but, that could be useful to a city, but it's somewhat hard to work with us just because of the nature of our jobs and, and the nature, frankly, of overhead. Um, so, so universities typically charge on the order of 50% of overhead. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar research project, then the, the university will charge $50,000. So now it becomes a $150,000 research project. Hmm. Um, but I will say, you know, those are sort of little challenges I would say like when things are good and um, clearly a good idea, there's this company in Fort Collins that manufactures sensors. They, they are on the Poudre river. There's this university that also 
is on the Poudre River and then a city that relies on that water. Um, because it's such an obvious idea for all of us to work together, everyone at every scale has been incredibly supportive from the dean of the Warner College, which is the college I'm in, um, to people relatively high up in the city and obviously folks at in-situ. So I think that's where it goes back to relationships. Like, yeah, there's some hoops and there's some mistakes that I've made. But um, in general, I think we're building something that is is reproducible. And um, that's one of the goals of this, I hope, is to sort of like use all of our knowledge and the mistakes that mostly I've made and sort of advocate for a path, a cleaner path to do this kind of work uh, in other places. Well, it's great of you to share all that. I'm sure a lot of people can relate. And, um, <laughs> you know, working within those constraints you just described, and of course, considering all the work that will have to be done around the wildfire uh, fallout, so to speak, when yep. you look at next year, what what would you like to accomplish around this project? And and what are the what's top of mind for what you'd like to yeah. see in 21? So the, the fire is definitely top of basically everyone's mind, um, both as a threat and as an opportunity. Um, so I, I'm really interested in how the fire, uh, there's some hydrologists here who've been funded to look at the sort of hydrologic impacts of the fire. So mostly from a sort of sediment perspective. Um, and I'm, I'm going to seek funding from the national science foundation on what they call a rapid, which is basically if there's a tragedy like this horrible fire, um, you can get funds more rapidly than you would if you went through the regular uh, grant review process. And in that grant, uh, the city and I have agreed that the thing that we're actually targeted on is a little different than most post-fire studies. And really we're interested, this is such a high elevation fire. Um, and there's a bunch of um, not directly water supply reservoirs, but reservoirs that hold a lot of the water that ends up being in the pooter. And we're really interested is, uh, will there be an algae impact on all these higher elevation reservoirs because the radiative budget up there is changed now because you don't have all this tree cover absorbing um, light. And um, so that basically we think that the temperature of these reservoirs might change. And then obviously the nutrient release in these reservoirs will be larger um, post fire, we think. And so we kind of want to study that. So I think actually one of the big things I'm interested in for next summer is what's going to be the algae setting, not only up at the high reservoirs, but also down low in the, in the river. Um, so that's one of the things that, um, I just emailed about Eric about today was getting a bunch of quotes for new sensors and with a more of a target towards chlorophyll measuring chlorophyll A, which is a proxy for algae biomass. That's a big part of what I'm interested in. And that relates directly to uh, the potential for anoxic events in the river. So the more algae you have in the summer, the more uh, potential you have for having zero oxygen in your water, which can kill fish and have all these negative consequences. Um, so that's sort of in the forefront of my research brain. There's a lot of other questions about sediment and other things uh, that people who work more directly on sediment work will be looking at at CSU. Um, and one of the things will be, hopefully we can get a lot of these sensors, hopefully that grant gets funded and then we can get a lot of these sensors out before snow melt starts. So we can sort of see a pre snow melt signature of the, of the basically mostly the groundwater. And then um, once the snow melts, we'll start to see the, the signature of that of the fire that's happened. Um, but the interaction of fires and water quality is one of these major issues that for a while we didn't really, it wasn't at the forefront of sort of um, city and state government's thoughts about water quality, but now you can't ignore it when more than 500,000 acres in Colorado have burned this year. Um, you re it's something that you really got to think about the immediate impact, which will be again, probably focused on sediment, but also the long-term impact, like some of that stuff I was talking about with nutrients and metals. 
So Matt, one of the things I'm always really impressed by is is how students can come up with ideas for data or ideas for sites that I hadn't even thought about. And they'll, they'll bring things up that really help to illuminate what's going on somewhere. So even though the sites are only a couple years old, have there been things that you've seen so far that the students have brought up that are really surprising or interesting to you? Yeah. So a couple thoughts um, related to that. Uh, so, you know, again, this is sort of an undergrad and graduate training setup. And so um, some of the ideas are coming from the undergrad. So one of the things is the main site I bring undergrads to is actually on CSU property, and that's called the Environmental Learning Center. And at the Environmental Learning Center, the best place we could find to install the sensor was um, in this pool. So it's like, you know, we think of rivers as sort of riffle pool structures. So you have some areas where the water's moving relatively fast and the, the water's shallow. And then you have other areas where it's quite deep. And a bunch of my undergrads were like, why is it in a pool here? Everywhere else it's in a riffle. All the other sites we've seen it, it's been in faster moving water. And, um, you know, I sort of knew that, but it just brought up this idea that actually at the same site of a river within a hundred meters, you could put in like two or three of these. And so that's actually something in the long term I want to do. And that comes straight from my students. Um, and I'll just mention also that one of the things that is maybe not, I, or it actually is surprising is that a lot of my students have said just this brief two month period working with these sensors and then working with the data has helped them to get jobs, which of course makes me feel quite good. Um, that <laughs> I, I'm, I'm often feel like I'm arguing uh, with folks that sensors are here to stay and we need to train our students for sensors and less for grab sampling, uh, or at least we need both. And um, it's it's gratifying that students come back and say, oh, yeah, it was the sensor data that was the key uh, for getting a job. So that's one part of that. And then, you know, the, the main part of that is that my student, Natalie, um, does a ton that I would have never thought of. And she follows through with a lot of ideas that I sort of just throw out of there like, oh, wouldn't it be cool one day of something? And so I've been chatting with her and a bunch of friends about this idea of like the river intuition machine, um, which is this idea that most citizens slash just regular folks don't know what a water quality, what a turbidity of 30 looks like and why it matters. Um, and I think one way to bridge that gap is to just show photos that are tied to data. And so the USGS is doing this all over the country where they put out cameras now and um, those are tied to their data. So you can see like, when you have this um, variability in turbidity, what that looks like in the river. And, you, and then people can be like, oh, that's really muddy. That's what a turbidity of 300 looks like. And um, I think that's really important for connecting people to their watersheds and water quality. And so Natalie and I installed four cameras. Um, she sort of just took this and was like, let's install cameras. And she installed a bunch um, over our in-situ sites. And now she's making these videos that are tied to the, to the imagery to our data. So it just gives you like a more personable intuition rather than a sort of machine number uh, uh, that's like, you know, useful to scientists, but less useful to the vast majority of people. So that's one thing that I just really like. And she took that even a lot further. She's TAing a um, sustainable watersheds class right now. And, you know, as part of that class, they can't get outside um, as much because it's a large hundred person class. So they can't go, go to the river at the same time um, during COVID. And so she actually, along with Gemma Fadham, another student, contacted the documentary studies department here. And they're now filming like a series of films to do this exact river intuition thing um, with a particular focus on what it, what does it look like now before the fires 
really have affected the water quality and what does it look like after the fires? And that's something I never would have done. And um, I just think it's like shows a couple of things. One, the sort of initiative and uh, interest that Natalie has. And then also like the different things that uh, people will bring to a project once you bring them on and give them some ownership. So um, I think Natalie's increasingly interested in sort of the science communication aspect of science. And that's something I obviously fully support. And this is a way where she just sort of took control of this project that had a very wonky goal, which is like water quality monitoring and is turning into something that it will really connect to people. And um, that's something I'm interested in, but don't always have the time to finish. And so that's just been really exciting to watch her grow into that um, realm. That is certainly not my specialty. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic to see. And I think the universities and, and CSU in particular are really well suited for this idea of taking data out of, of just the databases in the world that we live in sometimes and bring it back to the public in in focusing on the idea of what does this mean for, you know, the yep. idea people don't live in a community. Great. You know, uh, the, the river's flowing at, you know, 4,000 CFM. Great. What does that mean for me? Yeah. Which a bit changed because of the fire. Okay. What does that mean for me? And these, these projects, the things that your students are doing and the things that CSU are doing, I think really lend themselves to helping the community answer the questions as to why this is important for them. Because it yep. means a lot to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's a, yeah. yeah. Nothing much and I think one thing that I've, um, is another just theme of the research that we work on is what I and other people call data democratization. A key aspect of those kinds of things where you, give people control and intuition about what the data means is it allows people to advocate for themselves in the context of that data. And, you know, um, I'm certainly not a specialist in this, but I'm really interested in using data to think about environmental justice. And so that's like, how is the unequal distribution of water quality affecting different people? And there's a lot of history of research on this about floods. So it tends to be that minoritized people are more exposed to floods because of historic redlining and other um, essentially racist policies in the history of the U.S. And I think uh, we can use this data to to allow those communities to advocate for themselves. Uh, but we can only do that if the data is understandable to them. And I think that's where this like river intuition machine machine idea and data democracy is critical. And that only happens if you do the extra work to take it out of just being these numbers that have no um, inherent meaning. Just like we've all learned as the as the fires go on this year, like exactly what AQI we can go for a run for is, we can do similar things with water quality data about swimming and other things and, and give people more control of that. Um, so anyways, that, that's where like Natalie working on that is, is firmly actually, I think a part of the data is, is making sure that is um, understood by more people. I would just add, like, the city of Fort Collins has been wildly open-minded about open access data, and that is so great. And it's a real privilege to work with folks who um, are really open to open data, and that's not always the case. Um, and for, for relatively good reason. I think sometimes, you know, munici municipalities have a lot of pressure on their water resources. And um, sometimes the easiest thing is to only meet the legislative demand, which is like one sample per year kind of thing. <laughs> and the city's going way above and beyond that, partially because their citizens demand it, uh, but also just because the folks who work there, um, I think are really sort of thought leaders in this kind of work. That's great to hear. We have been spending quite a bit of our time recently thinking about how 
we move water quality data towards this this new Internet of Things space that we're all kind of accelerating towards quickly. Um, and certainly from the perspective of a hardware and software manufacturer, we see the value in it because people are asking us for it. Um, and it, it also kind of matches with our perception of how we see ourselves. But Matt, from, from a bigger perspective, you know, maybe one further away from, from just ourselves and how we, we look at, at our catalog and portfolio and what we're working on, is there something beyond that that really stands out to you? Yeah, I think the main thing is like this movement towards telemetry and live streaming data um, of water quality data is a tiny component of the larger context of uh, streaming data more generally. And so we've had all these wildfires we've mentioned in Fort Collins. And one of the apps I've been using is this app called Purple Air, which basically, um, instead of just having one measurement at an airport of air quality, makes it so that anybody can go out and buy these sensors, connect them to their Wi-Fi, um, and then have that sensor data live stream air quality. And so during the wildfires, you know, you might have just 30 minutes of clear air, but that could be critical for you to go for a walk and gain some sanity during COVID and wildfire season. And so I've been using that app sort of religiously and it's the reason it's so useful is it's live streaming a bunch of data. And so there's like 12 or 15 sensors at Fort Collins and you can really see the spatial distribution. Like, should I run north of town? Oh yeah, that looks less smoky. Um, and I think that that just is like one tiny, another tiny example of this vast growing thing where everything is measured and everything is measured live. Um, and I think that like one of the things that I worry about that space is that we, I don't think we want to cede that only to the computer scientists and data scientists. I think we need domain researchers active in this large internet of things, live streaming data. So we need watershed scientists and air quality researchers to be a part of that, not just watching it happen um, because now it's somehow data science or something. And so that's one thing I try to bring into my classroom a lot is like we to, 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 to work in this field anymore, you need to understand vast volumes of data. And that's not true. That's not only water quality, right? That's everything. Yeah, yeah. The, wor- the world is shifting to a place where we get a lot of information on a lot of different topics, and success is going to come through disseminating that data into meaningful uh, action. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the terrific conversation. It has been fascinating to get your take, uh, not only on this uh, project uh, in the river and what it means for the city and for your students, um, but also just the bigger picture on uh, water quality data collection and uh, its importance. What do you think, uh, Eric? It's, it seems to me that this couldn't have been a more timely conversation. Yeah, I think the work that Matt at CSU is doing with the city of Fort Collins and that we've been lucky enough to work with at in situ is, is really timely. Like you said, um, as the world changes and as we're having to adapt, uh, the, the ability to have these public private academic partnerships is only going to expand. And it's something that we're really excited to be a part of and really excited to see the outcomes that Matt and his students have. Yeah, we hope you'll circle back around and let us know how things are going. I'm sure we'll be in touch. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you all for listening. This is Aquapod, brought to you by InSitu. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out at InSitu.com. That's in-situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. 
This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Eric Robinson, and Lauren Ryan, with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field, and until then, take care out there.